Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, good morning. It's good to see you. We have, uh, uh, we're excited because uh, we are kind of doing um, Advent, focusing, um, and by that we mean just focusing on Christmas. We want to be ready for Christmas, so uh, we're kind of doing our own version of Advent in order to do that. Do you want to be ready for Christmas? <laughs> do you want to be ready? All right. Well, if you do, you came to the right place. All right? You came to the right place. So um, uh, you're going to have to hang in there. We got, we, got, we got a lot to deal with, so I need you to be prepared. All right, turns out in the first service, I uh, crammed a 30-minute talk into 50 minutes. So we need to figure out how to solve that. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I'll be gone in 22, so <laughs> I hear you. All right, listen, so we're going to do this a little bit, and I'm going to move a little bit quicker through this. But I read a great book. You know, I haven't had to preach in a couple of weeks, so I've finished like a number of books. All right, so uh, the one that I just finished, uh, it's not a hard read. I just didn't read it all in one sitting, and I could have. Helmet, Helmut Thielek, he's a, he was a German uh, professor and pastor in the middle of the 20th century. Wrote a little book for seminaries because he taught in a seminary in Hamburg in Germany. And uh, it's a great little book that's passed around. Lots of guys like to read this thing because he, uh, he noticed young seminarians, you know, after they would come to uh, seminary for the first year, you know, they'd learn all this new theology and then they'd run home and, and teach it. And he noticed that... Uh, they were uh, speaking way beyond themselves. Um, they, they were sharing this new theological truth they had, but it hadn't entered their lives and, and they hadn't experienced it yet. It was a great observation anyway. As a professor, he noticed it anyway. He started to say things like uh, it had not passed through their primary experience. So they were living sort of secondhand lives. Um, through their professors, you know, kind of knowing what they knew but hadn't experienced it. So he says, uh, young theologians manifest certain trumped-up intellectual effects which actually amount to nothing. It's a great little observation. Um, And so later he writes this, and this is really what I want to use for today. He says, here's my simple plea, and I think it's a something we could all hear today. And here's my simple plea. Every theological idea which makes an impression upon you must be regarded as a challenge to your faith. Don't assume as a matter of course that you believe what impresses you theologically. There's great thinking here. Uh, Impresses you theologically or enlightens you intellectually. Uh, And then he says, one of the most difficult experiences for a theological instructor to combat arises out of the fact that good theology, must remember, good theology must threaten our personal life of faith. Um, So I grabbed a hold of that thought, and I think it's perfect for Christmas because Christmas is filled with heavy theology. The heaviest, unheard of theological premises. 
that no other religion has ever stated, no man could ever have come up with. God came here. It's amazing theology. So highest spiritual thought possible. And it would provide you great theological stimulation, but it's got to do more than that. It's got to be something we experience. It's got to be something that can come alive in us and literally alter our reality. And if we're going to be ready for Christmas, then we've got to figure out how the high theology of Christmas comes to roost in our lives. Now, um, are you familiar with, I always connected this. So anytime I'm thinking about this, I always think of the movie Aladdin. You know, Disney came up. I remember when, you know, Robin Williams is the genie. And so when he finally discovers this genie and he comes out and he's so happy to be out of the bottle, you know. And the kid is trying to figure out, what? Who are you and what are you doing in there and all that? And he says this. And I've never forgotten. I've always related it to this. He goes, uh, uh, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. He says, uh, phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty living space. Well, right? Haven't we all done that? Have we all said that? If you've watched that movie? Well, that's essentially what, what Christmas is. Phenomenal cosmic theology comes to live right here with and in us. It's an amazing thought. Listen, until, until Jesus never thought of. High, high theology. And so the gospel that helps us I think the most with that, and they all help us, but John is uniquely good because, you know, when we say the gospel of John, you know, we say synoptic gospels. Have you ever heard of that? That's the three gospels because they're similar. That's why we call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John sticks out. It's different. And one of the ways it's different is that the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start out by trying to show you who Jesus is as a boy and a baby and a man, and then they try to prove by the end of the book that he's God. John does just the opposite. He starts right in the first verse of his thing. He says, tells you that he is God and then sets out to prove that he is. That's the difference. And so it's very high theology. All right. So it's, this is chapter one, one to 18. And it's considered it's the prologue to the gospel. And it's filled with incredible, wondrous theology. He's the word. He becomes flesh in chapter 14, and he dwells among us. And then in chapter 18, he, he literally, Jesus is the one who explains the Father. He literally comes all the, all the way down. So he's a word, so he wants to be communicated. And by the time you get to the end, you realize Jesus is the word. The one who was with God and was God now becomes the explanation for God. But you see this truth descending down to here. And so John has these great spatial image, imagery and irony that we get to play with. And so you see this huge theology that Jesus is God, and then he came down here to explain the Father to us personally. Even that has never been heard of. And then John has something of a second prologue, if you will, a second introduction, and it's focused on the disciples. The few who really realize this and want Jesus to explain this to them and what it looks like to them. And so you have this high theology coming down here and then you have what it looks like in, in a person's life. What happens when God shows up in your life? That's Christmas. What does it look like? And they show us what that looks like. And in between them, 
is John the Baptist. John the Baptist has the job. He's the first testimony to who Jesus is. So the the one helping these disciples realize who it is they're looking at who has shown up here. John the Baptist has that job. Um, He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. So think about this. All these Old Testament prophets, then there's 400 years of silence and out of nowhere shows up this guy. You know, dressed weird. Like, like throwback to 400 years. It's like the, I mean, he would have looked like that, I don't know, Pittsburgh Steelers outfit. You know, they got those funky socks and that striped, ugly thing that they, that uniform that they wear. Uh, that's what he kind of looked like. 400, it's like he stepped right out of the 400 years ago, and he's the one that gets to point Jesus out. Now, I'm reading on my Kindle um, the, an Advent you know, book on Advent by Walter Brueggemann. And he says this, and I love it. This is what really grabbed me. He said, the distance between John the baptizer and Jesus is small. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus shows up right here. I mean, he's the closest to him of all the Old Testament prophets. And then there's a 400-year gap before anyone even shows up. John the Baptist is the closest to him, and he gets to point him out. He gets to say, that's him. And the arm's distance, you can see him right there. It's close. He says the distance between John the baptizer and Jesus is small, not more than a millimeter. But he says, it's a space upon which our faith turns. And he grabbed me there. So it's the huge leap between Advent and preparation and the birth of newness in Christ. It's not more than an instant. It's quick. The world doesn't even notice But he calls it, he says, it's the great leap of our life. The leap that makes a big difference. So whatever this, I mean, it's just a small gap between them. But if you look at it closely and you see what John is pointing out, if you see who he is, it becomes a massive leap where the high theology becomes right here for us to grab and figure out how to put in our lives. And John the Baptist is the one chosen by God to do it. And so we get to see, we get to look at how John the Baptist, and I know what I love, so this is what you got. If you, if, if you really understand Christmas, you can see this high theology is going to be a great threat to your life. So these disciples are going to realize that this great truth and theology coming down here is a huge threat to the way they used to live. Not going to look the same anymore. Even though there's a small gap, it's a great leap. I just love that picture. So anyway... Uh, that's what we're looking at. What does, how does this high theology sort of challenge our faith? How do we make this great leap that John the Baptist is pointing out to us? So here's a beautiful thing. At the end of, in this section here, John is literally going to take three days consecutive. It almost never happens in the Gospels. You never get the luxury of seeing three days back to back so that you could say, this happened and this happened and this happened. If you've ever tried to chronologically, you know, put the Gospels in chronology, you pull your hair out, okay? Uh, so, um, so essentially, um, John's going to put three days together, and in those three days, he's going to point out who Jesus is for everybody to see. All right? And in those three days, it's three different groups he speaks to and three, different, and three different messages that we get for Christmas to know how to make this great leap 
and how to bring this theology to our lives. So let's jump into this thing. Um, here's what happens. So now, after all the, all the high theology, now this is John's testimony. And by the way, he's the first testimony. He's the first. He's the closest. Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. This is what they're asking him. Who are you? And he confessed. Well, he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. That was the assumption in there. Do you think you're the Christ, the Messiah? And he says, I'm not. Emphatically, I'm not. Then who are you? You Elijah? No. You the prophet? Nope. They said to him, who are you? So that question gets asked three times, and this is an important question. And then this one, the big one, the big one. What do you say about yourself? So you got this whole group of religious leaders, and John the Baptist has come on the scene, this Old Testament prophet out of nowhere, and he's doing things no one has done in 400 years. And he's saying things no one has said. And they want to know where he gets his authority from. They want to know who he is because he didn't come up from their ranks. He's not anybody in their team, and he's challenging their authority a little bit. So he's making waves, and it aroused the attention of the powers that be. And so they send a little delegation out to find out who he is. Well, here's John's answer, basically, in a nutshell. He quotes Isaiah 40, and he says, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, preparing, making straight the way of the Lord. Okay, this is uh, huge, because he's basically saying, I'm... I'm part of the prophecy. I'm not only a prophet. I was prophesied about. And what I was prophesied about is that I would make everyone aware of Yahweh. That's Old Testament Yahweh. That's God. And the highest you can say it in the Old Testament. John the Baptist is about to say, I'm telling you, God is here. Among you stands one whom you do not recognize. He's here. This is emphatic, by the way. So the verse literally reads, you among, he's here. This is John saying, God's here. This is like the first day to this little delegation of Jews, first theological high thought of Christmas. God is here. He might be standing around you. Look around. But you don't recognize him. He's not easy to see. This would have been incredible high spiritual thought. No one's expecting God to be standing next to him in a crowd. That is what John is saying. He's here. It's a shocking truth. It's not easy to see, even if you're smart. I um, uh, listened to the Rubin Report this past week. Shapiro and Peterson going at it. Um, uh, ben Shapiro, you know, obviously Orthodox Jew. Uh, and, a, and just so den- denies who Jesus is. Uh, Jordan Peterson, the sort of, uh, you know, professor, clinical psychologist, sort of a cultural intellect right now, speaking to uh, cultural issues, of blowing a lot of people out of the water, hurting a lot of people's feelings intellectually. Um, he's a um, professor at uh, University of Toronto. And he's gained a lot of steam. A lot of people have found him and think about him because he talks about moral values and things like that and uh, does it quite intelligently. And the two of them together is like enough brain power to, to, you know, to make us all feel really dumb. You know what I'm saying? Really, really dumb. So uh, anyway, the two of them are talking, and I'm so interested because the last hour they were trying to compare Christianity and Judaism. 
And, um, and I'm just going to say this. What happens is, is they really get really close to seeing who Jesus is. Quote the New Testament. Uh, although P, uh, Shapiro doesn't buy the, old, uh, the New Testament because he's Orthodox Jew. So he didn't, have, didn't see Jesus' place uh, as a deity, as God. And Peterson loves who Jesus is and thinks he represents something. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes. But at the end of the day, it's like the two of them are quoting scriptures and neither one of them see who Jesus is. And it reminded me, I'm reading through John like for the third time right now. And it says in John chapter 5 where Jesus says, you know, to the Jews, the very ones who came here to interrogate him. I'll tell you why you don't recognize him. You are looking into the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But they point to me. And he says, literally, you're unwilling to see me, and so you can't have life. You can know the scriptures. You can be intellect. You can be smart. You can have all the intellect you want, but you don't recognize it, and you don't see it. And a lot of it is a willingness. I don't want to see it, as we'll see in, in just a minute. Um, but they're not willing to see it. And you say, what's at stake? And what's at stake in this first point that I'm making um, about here's God at Christmas? This high theological thought and how it ought to threaten our life, challenge our life of faith. Well, sort of woven into this issue is the issue of authority and identity. And they're, they're pulled together in such a way that you can't figure it out. It's like when I ask you, who do you, because here's the main question when it comes back to this uh, here. Like, uh, who do you say you are, John? And so you can see these guys are focusing on the issue of authority. Like, who do you think you are baptizing? You know, back in those days, the only, you didn't baptize Jews. You baptized Gentiles who were going to become proselytes, who were going to become Jews. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to get into Judaism, you, want, you had to be baptized because you were dirty and needed to be cleaned in the water. And, but John, this, this character out of the Old Testament, it just... Jumping in and baptizing everybody. He's calling everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike. And they're coming out there and doing it. And so the establishment, the Jewish establishment is going, who do you think you are? What authority are you baptizing these people with? This question comes later in the text. You know, who do you think you are? And then the issue of identity. Hey, by the way, Hillside, listen, this is a great question to ask yourself. Who do you say you are? Who do you want to be known for? Who do you want other people to say you are? So here comes the crisis in the first one about this high theology. Um, who do you think you are? Because he didn't come up from their ranks. He's not one of them. He's kind of an outsider. He didn't have their education, their authority, or anything. He's this sort of wild character. And yet, he's so confident. He's so bold. His message, and there's no more bold Bolder person than John the Baptist. There's all this confidence, but he doesn't have any of their sort of, you know, uh, credentials. Uh, he just comes out of the, and he is a different cat. His personality is, just, you'll see, it's very difficult to deal with. He comes out of the wilderness. Who knows how long he lived in there uh, by himself. He's eaten wild honey and locusts. Okay? The first to ever shop at Aldi's. Right there. <laughs> Probably bought the camel skin outfit from all these two. All right. Straight shooter, different cat. Um, and yet he's got all this boldness and this confidence. Do you know, 
he was called the greatest among men born of women by Jesus. John didn't know how great he was. And they're trying to get him to say something along the lines. I mean, if you were him and you said, no, nah, I'm not Elijah. But do you think I look like him? Really? Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Do I sound like a prophet? Thank you. I've been working on that. Uh, 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 uh. Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you do that? When you're, how you, wouldn't you feel better about yourself? John is categorically denying all their categories of him. He will not let them define him. He's got a boldness about him. In fact, this is what John does. This is incredibly interesting. He makes this comment here at the end. This is what he says at the end of this text. I'm, when you compare me to the one who I'm trying to tell you about, listen, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And in this culture, that would have meant everything. Because in this culture, this dirty culture, I mean, you have sandals, dirty feet, hot, sort of foul, this smelly, dirty. It was, so, it was to the degree that there was only one class of servant that could do that, that could take your sandals off. So, you know, if you were a rabbi and you had students and, 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 and uh, they became kind of your servants at your beck and call, you could not ask, could not ask them to take your sandals off. And no one could ask a Jew. No Jew ever served so low as to take anyone's sandals off. And here's John the Baptist looking at his culture because we all have sort of those demeaning things. Every culture has the lowest of the low. I'd never want to be that. I'd never want to do that. When John the Baptist is saying, the guy that you think's the lowest, he's actually above me. I'm not even fit to be that guy. He said, where's he getting such a humble way? Where's he getting this humble identity? He's this confident guy, but he's extremely humble because God is in his presence. And he's looking at God for his identity, and he's not letting anyone else define him. He'll say, do you know how many ways, you know how many ways on a daily basis the angst of your world is, is all about who you're trying to be and who you're trying to please and how people see you and how you hope to see yourself. The angst of living because we're so, you know, performance-based and we're so wanting attention for, for whatever reason. We're all looking for something to identify us. Even if we say, I don't want to be identified. That's your way of, that's how you want to be identified. You want other people to see you that way. It's just, it's crazy. And so here's John the Baptist, who is sort of this confident guy, but incredibly humble in the presence of Jesus. The greatest among human beings. Greatest because he saw who Jesus was the clearest. He's the first to see Jesus the clearest, and he sees Jesus the clearest. God is standing among you. And when God's standing among you, it forces you to see Christ like that. You start to realize, you know, in myself, I'm really nothing. But in him, I'm, I'm everything. And so the question here for this first point about high theology entering your life is how do you see yourself? How do you want to be viewed? And to what degree is the identity you're achieving or hoping to achieve dictating how you live your life? Like, what do you want to be known for? Um, Maybe you're doing things and acting certain ways 
in order to meet up to that identity and it's and you're not able to be really who God wants you to be because you're not looking to him for your identity you're looking at somebody else this is very very subtle how this works um, and it might it might look a little bit good theology threatens your identity um, maybe you have a relationship right now with somebody and you're more concerned about how they see you or pleasing them than you are God. And it's forcing you to make some compromises in your life. And you're getting something from that identity as opposed to looking at Christ for his and being confident about who you are and how you are ought to be living your life. Maybe it's a job. For a lot of us, we give our identity from our job and our accomplishments and who we are. And, uh, and if I were to pull you aside and talk to you about your, your job, I might say, how many different places do you have to cross lines you wish you didn't have to cross? And you might just fumble around for a minute and go, yeah, there's some places where I have to be a little inauthentic. I have to be a little dishonest. I have to, I have to be a taker. Maybe I have to be immoral. But here, let me show you my office. Let me show you where I sit. Let me show you what I've achieved. Let me show you how I got here. Let me show you how people in the office see me. But, but that identity is dictating how you live in Christism. So it could be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be anything. But something always wants to sneak in and make you sort of dictate who you are. So right now, the first question on the table is, is the high theology, the reality that God is here. Are you looking at him so clearly as Christmas, or are you going to wait till Christmas Eve, take your deep breath, light a candle, and finally look at Jesus? Well, when I get to Christmas Eve, and we got everybody here, and I've done everything I need to do, and I've tried to please everybody I've got to please, and, and, and achieved the identity I want to achieve at Christmas... And make sure I hold up my end of the da, 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 da. Then I'll look at Jesus. And that's what, that's what John is saying. No, 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 no. If you've got a high theology of who Jesus is, you don't get to wait till Christmas Eve to be who he wants you to be. So who do you say you are? John categorically denies it. And the only thing John says he is, here's the only thing at the end of the day that John says he is. Man, I'm just a voice. I, you can't even put me in a carton or any kind of box or any kind of, don't, don't put a physical thing on me because I don't even see my, I don't, that identity's gone. I'm just a voice, a voice that points to him. My whole life, everything about me just speaks to the one guy who's here and he might be among you. And it's just my voice. And I wonder how many times our voice gets shut up because we're trying to be somebody else. I wonder how many times your voice doesn't actually get heard spiritually because you're living up to some identity that's not yours. And believe me, Hillside, I'm telling you this. And I've been so convicted about the subtle ways who I think I am drives what I do. It's not what God wants. So if that's you, there's one way that high theology threatens a life of faith. Well, that's the first one. So day two comes, and then you get the wonder of having a day two right away, all right? So now day two comes around. On the next day, John, that, that group's gone. He's spoken to that group. They go back and 
and share everything John shared with him. On the next day, Jesus sees coming toward, uh, he sees Jesus coming. Here, Jesus actually does show up. He could be, the, he could be here. There he is on day two. So Jesus shows up on day two, probably after the temptation. We're talking about 40 days of temptation, the devil. He just defeated the devil. Now he's about to launch this ministry. John's the first one to say, there he is. What's he going to say when he sees him? This is what he's going to say to the crowd. Now it's just the crowd. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John says. That's what he sees. If it was. If it wasn't shocking enough that God might be among you, if you do actually point him out and you say he's the lamb, that's not the God they wanted. They they were looking for a warrior. They didn't want a lamb. And so if it's not shocking enough that God's here, you're going to call him a lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And look what John says here in this verse here in verse 29. This is his. This is the one. This is the one I was telling you about. Whom I said, after me comes a man who's greater than I am because he, was, he existed before me. So he's coming after me, but he existed before me. This is why John sees such a huge gap between him and Jesus. So there's nothing Jesus can ask of him that's too, that's too low because He sees himself low in comparison to who God is. You realize who's here? He was before me. That's John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was. He was before all things, John says. But he comes after me. Here's the irony in the text. I've told you about this irony and spatial imagery that's going on in this text. So, look, he comes after me, but because he existed before me, that's the message of Christmas. The one who was up here before all things is now right here with me. Isn't that Christmas? That's the high theology of Christmas. And John says, everything in my life is dictated by that incredible thought. And when you look at the one who's here, why did he come? Why did the one before come? The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. John says, look at him, gaze, grasp, don't miss this. By the way, you've never heard this before. Until Jesus, no one had ever said anything like this. This is the reason why I think Christianity is worth investigating. Because you've never heard it before. No one's ever said God came here to do anything for you. Especially deal with your sins. By personally dying. That just doesn't happen. Uh, So when they think of a lamb, you know what they think of? A Passover. You know, when you think of the lamb, when they thought of the lamb, they thought purity. Oh, that thing had to be perfect. You couldn't put, you couldn't take a sacrifice that wasn't perfect. John is pointing out, that's the, that's the pure lamb of God. And you know what else about lambs? They didn't last long. I mean, you think of Passover once a year. Every morning and every night, they were, they were killing lambs. It was... Slaughterville. Lambs were good. You didn't want to be a lamb. Okay, because it's just sacrifice. And, you know, when you're in 
when you're thinking about Passover and you're thinking about Egypt and you're, this is what happens, this is what's happening. The, judge, the judgment of God is about to come by your house. He's going to take your firstborn son. And every single person with a, with a firstborn son would have been under that judgment had they, not had, had they not had blood on the doors. Everybody gets the same just judgment. Unless you have the blood on your doors, then he would pass over you. This is John essentially saying, this is God giving his firstborn son so you don't have to lose your firstborn son. This is the gift. Two chapters later, John 3.16, he'll say, for God's love, the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the gift. God's here and he's a gift and he's not passive, he's active. He takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just, you're not taking anything from him and you're not taking his life. He's giving his life to deal with sins. You know, in John chapter one, of this in the prologue, in that one, one to 18, remember what it says about Jesus? Oh, this is Jesus, full of grace and what? And truth. Well, here's grace and truth, mashed together. The Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of, the Lamb of God is the grace, takes away the sin of the world, that's the truth. Sinful, all of us. We, we, we got to have it. That's the hard truth. Um, you remember uh, talking, I was telling you, I was talking about G.K. Chesterton a few weeks ago before Thanksgiving. Um, the, he's the one that, you know, uh, looked around the, the problem of pleasure and, and he was an essayist and a, and a writer and I, wrote his, I read his book Orthodoxy and he's an apologist and he's a great defender of the faith. And, uh, but he wrote, very prolific. This is why this is even more interesting. The London Times asks him, along with other writers, to, to submit an essay. Uh, on the topic, what's wrong with the world? And you've probably heard this before because it's said many times, but because I referred to him, it comes to my mind. Chesterton sent in the shortest and the most to the point when he said, I am. I'm the problem with the world. Two words. No one is more verbose. <laughs> Matt's reading orthodoxy now as well, and we both were having a conversation about it. Nobody, nobody has more words to say than G.K. Chesterton, and yet, two words. This is a man who could look at his own life and say, I see the truth, and I need the grace. Listen, the cross flatters no one. No one gets to stand out there and say, so glad that's not me. And see, this is what I came away with when I was uh, uh, listening to um, Peterson and Ben Shapiro, because... Uh, they, um, they look at Jesus as someone who is, an, or at least Peterson does, an example of somebody you ought to follow. So when he says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, he means we all ought to be like him. Jesus isn't doing it for us. He's just an example we ought to follow. In other words, all of you ought to confront evil. These are the two things Peterson says. You ought to confront evil like Jesus did in the, in the, in the desert when he, came, when he 
you know, um, confronted Satan. And then you ought to be able to suffer for doing the good that has to be done in the world. And that's what all of us should do. So Jesus isn't doing anything special for me. He's not the, the actual way to God for me. He's the way to God for me because this is what I'm supposed to do and I've got to do it myself. Thank you, Jesus, for showing the way. But he doesn't see Jesus as the way. That's the difference. He doesn't like to be asked the question, do you believe in God? Because he doesn't, because wrestling with who God is, 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 is as intellectual as he is, he doesn't want God to be too defined. If you, if you make Jesus God, well, now, now we got a whole different way to look at reality, which is John's whole point in this book. And so he doesn't define God, and so you don't know where is he going to get help to be this moment. Both of these guys are screaming for the world to be moral, more moral. And at the end of the day, that ends up being their God is morality. It ends up being their God. Just spend all your life doing all the best that you can in the world. They never talk about the end. They never talk about hope. They never talk about victory. They never talk about ultimate justice. And who's going to make everything right? And what do you tell the guy who can't be good? Which, by the way, if we're all honest, is all of us. There's nothing there. It's empty. It ends up being what every religion of the world has always said. It ended up at the end of this. I'm driving home after this hour. I was in Addison driving all the way home. And I'm listening to this last hour. And by the time I was home, I just wanted to. (laughs) I mean, I literally did that in the car. It was the worst news ever. Because there's no one to make things right. There's no end game. There's no victory. It all ends up being for nothing. Do the best you can here and that's it. And John the Baptist is pointing out, no, 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 you'll never get that. No, 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 Good theology, if it comes in, it's going to threaten your life of faith. It is going to make you see that you can't do it. It's going to make you say that. Because you won't get grace unless you do. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, remember when John gets the vision? I'm reading through Revelation, so it's on my head too. And you got Revelation chapter 5, and you got this great moment, you know, where the lamb and everybody, you know, the, the scene in heaven, and there's a lamb there, and there's a, there's a God, and this, this, the writer, John, is looking around, and people are crying because no, one, no one's worthy to open the seals. Well, somebody's got to be able to open the seals because the seals uh, sort of unveil all of sort of judgment. Somebody's got to be able to bring judgment. What's John hoping? John's hoping there's someone up there worthy to judge the world and make everything right that's not right. And what does he see? There's an elder up there, and I love him. He's a grumpy old man. He just looks at everybody. He's crying. He says, stop crying, big babies. If you'll just look close, there's a lion up there. And that lion is the one who's going to open it. What do you mean the lion? And all of a sudden you look a little bit over and at the center of this whole scene is a lamb. And that's literally what he says in Revelation 5. He literally says, standing in the middle of the throne of the four living creatures, in the middle of the elders is a lamb that appeared to have been killed. And then they all started singing, okay, he's the one that's going to, he's the one. And then it said, they started singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals and make everything right because you were killed at the cost of your own blood. You have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation because there's sinners everywhere. And you have, because of what you've done, you are the only person capable of judging the world and making it right. 
That lamb, John says, if you don't have that lamb in your life, you have no ultimate victory. You can't have it. Doesn't matter how intellectual you are. Doesn't how doesn't matter how how high of a moral achievement you arrive at. That's what John. It's a beautiful text. And they sing, "Worthy is the Lamb who was killed to receive glory and honor and power." It's a great book. So another book that I got to finish that I have loved, overwhelming book on sin. Something I'll get to later in in, in down the road. Um, He's writing about sin, and he says, somehow we've just lost the truth about our sin. And he says, the loss is is devastating to us. Here's what he writes. The slippage in our consciousness of sin, like most fashionable follies, it might feel pleasant to us, but it's devastating. He says, self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. What's devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play right ones or even recognize them in the performances of others. That is a great line. And then he says, eventually we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and the recapitulation of the main themes. In other words, just the summary of the main themes that God plays in human life. John would say, I'll tell you what you miss. You miss the lamb. You miss the high theology of God becoming man and more than that, becoming our sacrifice, our substitute. And then he writes this, the music of creation and still the greater music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath, leaving no residue. And moral beauty like that, listen, If all you're trying to achieve is just some level of morality that makes you feel good about yourself, this writer says you'll get bored with that. And then he says the idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. Listen, if you don't see your sin, Christmas just is just a sweet old another holiday. John is pointing out the lamb because of our desperate need of a savior. And if that doesn't disrupt your life, I don't know what does. And then finally, day three, and I'll make this quick. So on day three, the crowd has dwindled, as you imagine. Come on. The next day, This is day three. John was standing there with two of his disciples. So now, you know, John has been baptized. He's got disciples too. What what are you going to do with your disciples, John? And so all of a sudden, Jesus is there again. He walks by. Jesus walks by again. What an incredible thing. John the Baptist must be going insane. Last Old Testament prophet. I get to point him out. There he is. And every time he walks by, there's the lamb. There's the lamb. He can't help himself. Look, there's the lamb. He can't stop. He gets to be the one. Am I talking really high? That sounded really high. So when John's two disciples heard him say this, look what they did. So now you're seeing, what do you do? What's the third thing on the third day? Well, here's the thing. Once you see, the crowd dwindles to just a few because it's always just a few that really get it. Because you've got to be looking really hard. 
to see God here and as a sacrifice for your sin. It's grace, but it's mixed with, a, it's amazing grace, but it's mixed with devastating truth. And so here's two disciples of John, and John, essentially, what you're going to see is John's just going to say, go follow him. Don't stay with me. Remember when John said later in, in the book of John, John the Baptist will say, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. Yeah. Follow him. You guys go with him. You're not, you're not here to bolster up my self-image. The goal is to be with him. And notice how uh, this plays out, because this is the application. Jesus turned around, and when he saw them, this is a great thing. Jesus turns around, and he sees them following the one thing you wanted to do. What did you want the lamb to do? John's pointing out the lamb. The lamb of God's here. Well, what are we supposed to do with the lamb? Follow him. That's what we're supposed to do. What does that look like? Uh, Jesus says to them, what do you want? It's a great question. It's the second great question of this text. The first one is, who do you think you are? The second one is, what do you really want? Better ask that question because you might be struggling to get it and what you get may not be great. They said to him, Rabbi, here's their answer to that question. What do you want? They said, where are you staying? This is great. In this culture, that would be the question you would, that, that's, that'd be the way you answer the question. Here's what they're saying. We want to be where you are and go where you're going and stay where you're staying. This is John's favorite word in the whole book of John. This is the word, you know, for minnow, where we get a word abide. The whole abide concept in John, it all starts right here. We want to be with you. We want to abide with you. We want to stay with you. We want you to influence our lives. We want our lives now caught up in you. That's what it means to be ready for Christmas. That's good theology affecting, uh, threatening your life because you can no longer do life the way you used to. Now you're staying with him and you're letting him dictate the reality of your life. So we were at some friend's house a couple nights ago. I had a great dinner, and they introduced us to a couple that were uh, that, that was their friends uh, who were you know, really sharp people. It was great to get to know them. But we got to hear their story a little bit. They've only been married a few years, but they're a little bit older, and um, both of them were widows. And uh, found each other, and they found each other online. And I, we were curious about that because it turns out people really do find each other online. As much as apprehensive as you are about thinking, does that really work? It works. Uh, and this couple uh, was was proof of that, and they were telling us about their story. And this, uh, I think, she was on like five different sites to meet someone. I can't remember if he was on a bunch or at least one. He was on at least one, but anyway, he had gone through twenty-eight people before he met her. 28 days, are you broke or what, what's the story, 28 days. and then she said, I, went to, I, I got, only had to do five before I met him, so I asked him a little bit about the whole process, and anyway, they were saying, it's just, it's a strange process, because it's amazing how many people will put their picture up of yesteryear, and show up looking like grandpa's, you know, <laughs> and so, um, and then they said, the other one that happens, the other one that happens all the time is you'll see this. You'll see this. That's the acronym that kind of funds their life. It's spiritual, but not religious. And she said, 
almost every time you meet a person saying this, they have no idea what they're talking about spiritually, literally. And see, this is a great way to say, you know, I do have spiritual thoughts, but I don't want anybody telling me how to live my life. That's essentially what they're saying. I don't want any authority in my life. You want to talk about good theology coming in your life? You find out who Jesus is and you realize he's God and that he sacrificed for you? You want to live there, brother. That's where you want to live. You want him calling the shots in your life. You don't want anyone else calling the shots in your life. You want him to dictate it off. He says, do it, you do it. If he says, stay, you stay. If he says, go, you go. That's what it looks like. Good theology will challenge your faith. And I love, um, so, you know, if we come back to our picture, if I could just take a second here, let me come back to our picture here because I think you'll like this picture. Remember where we started? John 1.18, God, the word becomes flesh. He explains him. God, Jesus explains him. God, truth comes down this way. And then, and then you say, what does it look like when, when truth comes to live among you? When, God's, when actually God comes to live, what does that look like? It comes all the way back over here to the other prologue. It means stay with you. He wants to live with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to abide with you. He wants to be one with you. He wants your lives to be intertwined. He doesn't want you living some other kind of life and then have some sort of spiritual life on the side. He doesn't want that. That's why in John 15, he will say, you know, no, there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, and you are my friends. And I want to reveal my, this is the words, reveal myself to you. And you're like, that's what I want. I want to be friends, and I want you to reveal your world to me, and I want to know what you want because I want those things because we're friends, we're close, we're relational. When God came here, it was so that we would stay with him. That's the picture. That's getting ready for Christmas. So if, so you're like, oh, man, what do I do right now? Because if you're... You know, if you're, you know, if you're me and you're hearing this, you're hearing it for the first time, I've had a few weeks now to meditate on this, and it's just destroyed me, if you're just happy. Did that make you happy? It's destroyed. All three points destroyed me. Who, who do I think I am? Uh, what, am I, what do I really want? <laughs> destroyed me. Um, so... You're like, well, what should I do? And that's what, that was the position I'm in. Well, what do I do about this? I got an identity issue. I got sin I might be making light of in my life. I got Jesus wants me to stay with him, be friends and reveal. And I don't know if that's happening. And then I go back to, let's, look, let's let John help us again. Let's let John the Baptist help us again. What does John say? Well, he quotes Isaiah 40. This is the end. This is the end of the talk. It's almost over. Just hang with me right here. This is, it's almost over. Uh, John quotes this verse. So let's look at the verse he quoted. And this is what he quoted. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is Isaiah 40. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is John saying, you know, my job is to create a highway. God can get to you as fast as he can. That's his job. And then he says here, and this is the great picture. That means every valley has to be lifted up. That means every mountain has to, be, has to literally be mowed over. All the uneven ground has to become level. All the rough places have to be smooth. We got to make it the clearest path, the straight, you know, the straightest point between 
between the points A and B, you want a straight shot to him. You don't want anything in the way. Well, of course, this is going to be metaphorical. John literally did come out of the wilderness and cry. But he didn't really mow down mountains, and he didn't literally raise up valleys, and he didn't, he didn't have a, he wasn't driving a bulldozer. What's he saying? He's saying every, anything in your life that's low, and you know it's low, it's debasing, it's not healthy, that's got to be raised up. Any, any mountain, any, any pride, any arrogance, any hypocrisy, any judgmentalism in you, any self-righteousness in you, you think you're better than anybody, that's got to be made low. You got to be humbled. If there's any uneven ground, you know, crooked things, you know, there's crooked ways in your life. You got to level those out. If you got rough places, clutter and, and, and things, that terrain you can't move well on, smooth them out. This is John saying, what are you going to have to lose? Because whatever it is, mow it down, clear it out, raise it up. It's a great Christmas challenge. Don't dare wait till Christmas Eve and go, you know, maybe uh, I should think. No, John was saying, right now, what's the straightest shot to Jesus from where you sit? John would say, you get there. You make that theology come alive in your life. Father, I lift up this congregation for each one of us, Father. There's so many things here that need to be cleared out so we can get closer to Christ and see what John the Baptist saw. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.